Well, our desire is that through those commandments, the teaching of God's word, that we will understand, that we will understand his will. And we're going to uh, embark upon that this morning. Let me have you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to begin our reading in chapter 12 in verse 19. We'll be reading down through chapter 13, verse 7, and verses 1 through 7 will be our text for this morning's. But we're going to begin in Romans 12, 19. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let us give good attention to, <clears throat> to its reading this morning. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breathing out here the word, or God breathing out his word through the apostle, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the knowledge that though the grass and the flower will fade away, though all things fade away, that your word stands forever. We thank you for your word today. We pray that as we look at this passage of scripture that you would teach us, that you would use this to sanctify us, to to cause us to grow in our knowledge and in our love and in our response to the grace that you have shown to us. And we ask it for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are returning back to the book of Romans after a couple of weeks uh, off from looking at this. We'll continue our study here. Paul uh, is now in the section of the book of Romans and has been since the beginning of chapter 12, the section where he's looking very practically at the Christian life, uh, expanding here on and explaining the statement that he makes back at the beginning of chapter 12 that because of the mercies that God has shown to us, uh, that he has shown to us in justifying us freely, forgiving our sins and reckoning us righteous through Jesus Christ, and having given us all things that are needful for our salvation, as Romans 8.32 tells us, uh, each of us now, Paul says, 
He writes here that we are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then throughout the rest of the book of Romans, Paul is going to explain to us and is explaining to us how we do that. We've looked through the rest of chapter 12 and we've seen the beginning of how we are to do that. And now, still in that vein, we come to chapter 13 and to particularly this morning these opening seven verses. And as we do, we come to a passage that has become one of the most reasoned away, one of the most subjected to the death of a thousand qualifications in the whole New Testament, and that by Christians. It is a subject that is pertinent. It was pertinent to Paul's audience as he wrote to them. It is pertinent to us today. It is always important. So, you know, and I resist the urge to say, especially in our day, but since I already said it, especially in our day, um, it is particularly difficult for us to, to take this passage at face value. And it is, it is a rather straightforward passage, as we'll see today. Um, but it's hard to take it at face value when we can find in our lives, in our situations, so many reasons to want to qualify it to death. When there has been, especially in our day, especially in the recent last, you know, recent years, so many reasons for us to be suspicious of the governing authorities. So many, what many of us would call unjust, politically motivated, arguably even contrary to our national values, uh, actions taken by our government at various levels. So it is very timely then that we come to Paul's God-breathed teaching this morning. These verses are very much in discussion and have been very much in discussion in the church over the last couple of years. But as I say, this passage that we are looking at this morning is very simple. It's very easy to understand, but it's very difficult to apply. And it necessitates looking to other places in Scripture to fill in some of the things that Paul doesn't address here. But they're important in coming to a a good biblical understanding of the Christian's relationship and duties in regard to the civil authorities, the civil magistrates. Uh, But let's get into the passage here this morning. We're going to work our way this morning through this passage and see what Paul has to say here. And then next, next week, we will spend some more time looking at some of the the nuance that we find elsewhere, some of the the what-ifs that I know that many of you are interested in. But we're going to start this morning where Paul starts, with a simple statement of our responsibility, our responsibility. And as he comes to chapter 13 here, Paul wastes no time getting right to the point. 
And this is the point. He's going to come back to it again at the end of this passage. This is the point. He says at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is the Christian ethic in regard to our relationship to government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's what we should take away from these verses. And we'll see, as he explains further, that this is his point that he is making. He is not giving us, here in chapter 13, he is not giving us instructions on how the government should function. He is not giving us a description of a type of government that we can submit to. He's not concerned here in chapter 13 to delve into all of these questions regarding this subject. He's not even talking about how we should evaluate a government. Whether there are times that that this statement doesn't hold when this isn't appropriate. He doesn't mention any limits to our obedience. We, We will see that that is addressed elsewhere not nearly as broadly as, as some might like to say, but we will see that, we'll particularly look at that next week because he doesn't address it in chapter 13. It is also very important for us to keep in mind as we look at this passage that Paul is speaking generally. He is instructing us about our relationship to the governing authorities. Notice, he does not narrow that down. He does not qualify that statement. No qualification, no stipulation concerning the type of government or the the rightness or the fairness or the humanitarianism, etc., of the government. Again, his purpose is not to, to parse that out. He has chosen not to do that. To describe them and to give us the, the purpose to then go back to every government and say, well, what about the government of country X or country Y? Paul knows, and in fact the Roman empirical government under which he lived is abundant proof that not all governments are righteous. In fact, that no government is righteous. But his command to us comes If there is any qualification, it is a a non-exclusionary qualification. He says, let every person. There is no one who is exempt from this. Every person should be subject to the governing authorities. We are to submit to them. That's what it means by being subject to. We are to submit to them. We are to obey them. We are to recognize their place and our place as citizens. A a fact which leads some now and and certainly then to to question. Because some have have reasoned, well, we are indeed, and and this could very well have been the reason that Paul is addressing this. Because this was certainly, I'm sure, a part of the, what was being thought during the time when Paul wrote this. We are citizens of heaven, aren't we? And many will reason, since we are citizens of heaven, we have no responsibility as citizens of this earth. 
And though we are citizens of heaven, though we are strangers here in a strange land, we are also, by God's doing, by God's providence, we are also citizens of the nations in which we live. And Paul says here that that entails that we should, to put it simply, be model citizens to the degree that we are able. Why? Because God tells us to be model citizens. God tells us to let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And as I said, he repeats it at the end. Therefore, in verse 5, one must be in subjection. Peter agrees in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, in a way, or in a passage that's in many ways very parallel to this one, Peter begins by saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Paul also shares this when he speaks to Titus in Titus 3.1. It says to us the same thing. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, he says. So that, very simply, is our responsibility. That is our call as Christians in regard to the various nations in which various Christians have lived under through various times that we, as we live under a government in this time, the command of God is let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's our responsibility. Next, Paul gives to us the reason. Paul's reason is our second point, our second topic to talk about here. Look at the second half of verse 1. We'll begin with the beginning of verse 1, so we read it all. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So here's what Paul is saying. Everyone should be subject to the governing authorities, and the reason that we are to be subject to the governing authorities is that those governing authorities have been put in place by God. And Paul emphasizes that statement by stating it two different ways. He says, first, there is no authority except from God. Now we get our bearings here. Because first and foremost, that statement reminds us of who is the ultimate authority. There is no question of that, is there? All authority exists, or all authority that exists is ordained by God, who is the ultimate authority. It is ordained for His purposes. Whether that's the Egyptians, whose purpose was to enslave God's people, whether it's David and his kingdom, whose purpose was really to justly rule over God's people, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar, whose purpose was to be used by God to judge God's people, to destroy the nation, to drag God's people away and to put them in in, uh, exile in Babylon. Or whether it's Cyrus, whose job it was to come and free God's people and to let them come back to the land, to bless the people of God. The pagan king Cyrus 
is referred to by God as my shepherd in Isaiah 44, 28. Or whether it's the Roman Empire under whom Paul lived, who both made great advances in in different ways in roads so that the gospel could be spread and were also the instrument in the hands of the Jews in crucifying the Son of God. And it goes without saying that though God ordains these, he appoints these, that God does not cause rulers to judge unjustly, but he allows them to rule unjustly. And he uses them, even in their unjust rule, for his good purposes. But it says that every authority that exists is from God. Every authority that exists in the state, in the home, in the church. But as we're reminded by the fact that it comes from God, we are reminded that all of that authority in the state and in the home and in the church, that is all conferred authority, isn't it? It's delegated authority. It is conferred, in this case, on the state by God. Remember, Jesus reminds Pontius Pilate of that as he stood before him in John 19, 11. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all, what? Unless it had been given you from above. The implication is, it had been. Paul also says here that those that exist, that is those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God. Saying really the same thing. And it applies both generally and specifically. Generally, all governments, the the idea of government, the concept of, of civil government has been instituted by God, just as the family has, just as the church has. In Proverbs 8, 15 and 16, God speaking says, By me kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me princes govern, and nobles, all who rule the earth. So all nations, all governments have been instituted by God. And then specifically, this would mean this particular government, any particular government, that specific kingdom, that particular empire. Daniel 4.17 says that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He gave Nebuchadnezzar Babylon. He gave the the Roman Empire to the various rulers. He gave our nation to the various presidents that we have had throughout our time. And because this is the case, because every institution has, or every government has been instituted by God, we are to be subject to those authorities. We are to, in the Lord, live in submission to the God-ordained institution of the state. We don't always like it, we rarely like it completely, but we are told to let every person be subject to the governing authorities. No qualification here. And not because Paul has in mind some sort of utopian righteous government, he didn't, but because God is a God of order and God in his order has established the powers that be. 
And because of this, because this authority is from God, Paul now moves then to the the result in verse 2. He says, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. He says at the beginning of that verse, therefore. And that's a a logical connection word. We've talked about that before. But here it is very clear. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has instituted. Again, very simple. It follows necessarily. If the authorities are instituted by God, and if they come from God, if they are ordained by God, if they are put in place by God, which Paul just said they are, all of them, he says there is no authority except from God, then it follows that whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Whoever is not in in subjection to the civil magistrate, the governing authorities, at whatever level, whether in our case, whether it's the federal government or whether it's the policeman that pulls you over, whoever resists that is resisting what God has appointed. Very simple. I told you this was an easy passage. This isn't rocket science if you believe what the Bible says. God has instituted the state as an authority over us. And if you resist that, if you rebel against it, if you decide that it doesn't apply to you, if you you believe that there are extenuating circumstances other than the one that we will see later, then you're resisting what God has appointed. And, as always, rebellion against God has, has consequences. The last part of the verse says, those who resist will incur judgment. See, because the issue here is that those who resist are not just resisting man. They are not just rebelling against man, but they are rebelling against God. However, we might seek to justify it. Now, a question arises. This judgment that Paul speaks of here, that those who resist will incur, is this the state's judgment Or is this God's judgment? Well, because the affront is really against God and against institutions that he has put in place, it appears that this is God's judgment. And by the way, the the wording in the original adds emphasis to the, the culpability on the person. Literally, it says that they will bring judgment on themselves. But that being said, that this seems that this is God's judgment that those who resist will incur, remember that there is a very close connection here between the judgment of God and the work of the state. Let me show you that real quickly. Look down in verse 4. Speaking of the government, the state, it says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, the, the civil magistrate, the government, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out what? God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It says that he, the state, the authority, is a servant of God that carries out God's wrath. So it is God's wrath, perhaps, that we are incurring. But God, as he does very often, uses means to accomplish his ends. So the state may be the agent, 
by which this wrath is at least partially shown to those who resist God's appointed authorities. But the wrath is really God's upon those who resist his established, his established authority. Next, then, Paul expands on that relationship between us and, and the authority of the government. And that's the fourth thing, is our relationship to the authorities. He explains it in verses 3 and 4. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, in these verses, Paul addresses both the individual with a question, and he lays out for us the purpose of government. So here's the question first that Paul puts forward. He basically says, do you want to live in society without having fear of the government? And here's the answer that he gives. Then do what is good. Do what is right. And you will not have to fear the government. Now, we all know how this goes in sort of a, a, a mundane application of it. You're driving down the road, driving down the freeway. You drive under an overpass. You look to your right, and you see that CHP car sitting there. What do you do? Well, if you're driving the speed limit, you go on your way with no fear, not a thought at all. But if you're going, not that anybody would, 25 miles over the speed limit, your heart starts to beat faster, the adrenaline starts to flow, you look in your rearview mirror without looking like you're looking in the rearview mirror. I've heard these stories from people. And you, you try to slow down without looking like you're trying to slow down, and you try to, <laughs> in the Star Wars movies, uh, Han Solo told Chewie to fly casual. You try to drive casual. That's what Paul's talking about here. If you don't want to be in fear, if you don't want to be in fear of the CHP officer pulling you over, what? Don't speed. If you don't want to live in fear of the government, he says, follow the rules. Follow the laws. Do what is good and you will receive his approval, Paul says. You won't have to sneak around. You won't have to pull down the shade. You won't have to avoid the police. Because, he says at the beginning of verse 3, because rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Difficult? No. On the other hand, verse 4 says, but if you do wrong, be afraid. If you rebel against the government, if you break the laws of the land, you are going to, and you are rightly going to, have problems. And that is because, the reason you're going to have problems is because of the purpose that God, again, God himself, has ordained for the governing authorities. And Paul begins it there in verse 3. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. The government is not a terror, is not a cause for fear to good conduct, but to bad conduct. The purpose of civil authority is to be a terror, a deterrent to bad conduct. 
the evil person, the rebellious person, the, the scofflaw. I love that word. The scofflaw is to be afraid of the government, not the good person, not the law-abiding citizen. And in general, that is the case. Even under otherwise corrupt governments. The civil government has a God-ordained role in doing good in this world, Paul is saying. He says that he is your servant for good. They are to maintain order. They are to protect the innocent. They are to promote, even as our own constitution says, the general welfare of its citizens. Verse 4 says, He, the government, is God's servant for your good. As much as, as we can distrust, sometimes despise the government, which is usually more likely when our guy is not in the White House. But as much as we despise government, we need to see it as a good thing, as restrictive, as detrimental to what we would call good, and at times we would call unjust. Think of what things would be like without it. Now, sometimes you might say say things would be better because everybody could do what they want. The problem with that is that then everybody could do what they want. The government serves you. It serves God to do good for us. And again, they don't always do it as they should. They never do it as they should. There is no government under the sun that does. Sin and pride and the lust for power and self-serving motivations and actions are as visible and as operative in the God-ordained institution of the state as surely as they are very often visible and operative in the God-ordained institution of the family. Do parents act contrary to God's will? Do they act sinfully and pridefully with self-serving motivations? Yeah, they do. Does that invalidate the institution of the family? No. And the fact that sinners occupy all of these positions throughout our government does not invalidate them or their place under God's authority structure. Wherever sinners are, you can be sure of this, sin will be there. But the government is there, established by God for our good. For our good. That's not just our Constitution's plan, it's God's plan. To provide a safe, stable, organized, crime-reduced place where we can have a peaceful and live a peaceful and quiet life. And for those who do good, all is well. But what about when they don't? Paul speaks of that here. He says in verse 3 that the state is not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And for those who are not submissive, for those who, who, who flout the laws, who do not submit to the governing authorities, to us, when we are not submissive to those governing authorities, Paul says in verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid. And why? Paul says, because he does not bear the sword in vain. That is, God has ordained the governments in place who have the delegated authority, remember delegated from God himself, 
they have the right to put teeth to the enforcement of the law. Bearing the sword in this context certainly refers to the extreme punishment of death. Being put to the sword means to be killed. But it's broader than that. It's broader than just a reference to the death penalty, which is certainly a right and proper and biblical concept, an appropriate penalty for premeditated murder, what we would call first-degree murder, going back to Genesis 9 where murder is described as an attack on the very image of God that every human person bears. And we might add that they bear that image from the moment of conception. But God himself sets forward that when someone murders someone else, their life is to be forfeit. Paul himself was committed to that. He was so committed to that, so submissive to that, that he was willing to submit himself to it if the law and the facts called for it. You remember that? It's over, you don't have to turn there, but it's over in Acts 25. Paul is before Festus, a representative, by the way, of the Roman Empire. And Paul says this, To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But, he says, if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. But Paul says, if I deserve to die, I'll die. I'm committed to that. But Paul's statement here in verse 13, yes, refers to capital punishment, but it's broader than that. It's a reference to the right of government in general to enforce its laws with force if necessary. And it does that for a specific purpose, tied to its very reason for existence, and that is this, at the end of verse 4. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We started our reading this morning back in chapter 12. I started in verse 19. I did that on purpose. We reread that so it would be sort of fresh in our mind that Paul says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We're not allowed to take vengeance. And sometimes we think, oh, do we have to wait then for the last day for that eschatological judgment upon wickedness to take place? And Paul says, no, not in all cases. Now, the ultimate judgment will come then. But he's also saying that there is one way here that God takes vengeance on evil and evil people during this time. He exercises vengeance partially through the activity of the civil authorities through their enforcement of laws. Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that, too, is another aspect of of how, or this is another aspect of how that is done. Not only through the state, but partially through the state. Not only through the punishment of wrongdoers here in our world, in the various governments that are set up, but partially through that. 
The state is the servant of God, Paul says, who carries out not just man's wrath, not just the judicial wrath of the state, but verse 4 says that he carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is part of their purpose. This is what the governing authorities are called by God to do. The fifth thing that we want to see is, let's call it a reiteration and reference to practice. So we keep our R's going. A reiteration and reference to practice. Because finally, Paul summarized what he's been saying, and then he adds a, a, a column to this, a support to this, a reference or an appeal to his reader's current practice in another situation uh, to wrap this all up. His summary is in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Therefore, one must be in subjection. See, he said that at the very beginning. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now he puts another bookend on this to sort of wrap this up together. And it's required, Paul says here, for two reasons that he has really brought out in the intervening verses. First, he says, we submit to the government, verse 5 says, to avoid God's wrath. Now, whether this is referring again to God's wrath through the actions of the government, like we just looked at, or he's referring to God's wrath coming in some other way, the point is clear either way. To refuse to be in subjection to the governing authorities whom God we have seen has put in place is to invite God's wrath. to disregard the governing authorities, to not be subject to them, is wrong, it is sin, and God will deal with it. When we are coming up with all sorts of justifications to rebel against the government regarding things that we don't like, let us keep this in mind. As I said, we're going to see an exception next week. But in general, we need to be submissive to the government. Why? Because I say so? No, because God says so. So the first reason is to avoid God's wrath. Do you want to avoid God's wrath? Yes, hopefully. If you understand God's wrath, then yes, you do. The second reason, he says, is for the sake of conscience. So see what Paul's doing here. He starts out with, a, with a, an external compulsion to do what we are to do, to avoid God's wrath coming at us. But also, he says, for the sake of conscience. This is an internal motivation. Not only because we, we fear and want to avoid God punishing us, but Paul says we are to do it because we know it is the right thing to do. It's interesting that people, when they try to get out of Romans 13, that they very often try to use conscience as an excuse to disobey the government. But Paul says that a biblically informed, a biblically grounded conscience will lead in the opposite direction and will lead us to be subject. That is the message. All of that is the message to Romans 13, 1 through 7. Again, it's very simple. Be subject to the governing authorities because there's no authority except from God. 
Then he adds this in verse 6. He says, For because of this, that is because of your conscience, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. He's saying here, you, you know this already. You know the, the fact that you need to be submissive to the government. And you know it because you show it because you pay taxes. No one anywhere ever in any situation likes to pay taxes. But we do it. Jesus, when asked, even confirmed that it is right for his followers to pay taxes. Even to an oppressive government, where, under a local system that was rife with corruption. And we do so because that is part of being a good citizen. And by so doing, we are recognizing the God-given authority of the government. Now, that's not the same as saying paying higher taxes is patriotic. But paying the taxes that we owe under our government itself is a demonstration of our submission to the government and something we are called to do. And Paul is saying you do that. He says by doing that, you're showing that you recognize that God has put these authorities in place. And he concludes then by bringing this all together in a general exhortation in verse 7 to give to everyone what you owe them. Specifically here the government is in view. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I told you this was straightforward. And it is. Except, I also said, understanding it is easy and applying it is hard. And I also said that there is an exception. Not nearly as broad as we sometimes like to think, but there is an exception. Today we've laid the foundation. This is where we have to start in understanding our relationship to the government. This is the the broadest, most in-depth teaching on it. And it's very simple. But next next time, we'll squint a little. We'll try to see those things that are maybe a little more out of focus than than what what we thought we see today. We'll see what more the Bible has to say about this issue and take some time in dealing with the the difficult task of applying these principles that Paul has clearly laid out to us. We'll do that next week. But until then, let us remember that, again, this is very simple. Uh, We are to be subject to those that God has placed over us because God has placed them over us. That is our starting point. Um, And Jesus himself lived in submission to the governing authorities, didn't he? He was not a a rebel. He was a religious rebel. He challenged the, the religious authorities, but he lived at peace with the governing authorities. He was not an insurrectionist. He was not a scofflaw. He submitted to the governing authority, the governing authority, as part of his life of innocence, 
part of his life of obeying his father, of, of obeying the word of God, which was necessary for him to do if he were to, as he did, offer up an acceptable sacrifice to God, offer up a righteous sacrifice to God, and live righteously so that, as we've mentioned earlier in the service, so that that righteousness could then be imputed to us. An acceptable sacrifice for your benefit. So we'll pick this up and talk further about it next week. But let's pray. Our Father, we... We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we, we thank you for the clarity of it. Um, sometimes, Lord, we, we struggle with the clarity of it, but we pray, Father, that you would instruct us. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would work in us that we may appropriately live um, as we should in, in relation to the governing authorities that you have placed over us according to your will, according to your plan. Um, help us when that is difficult. Um, help us when that does not fit with what we think we should do or what we want to do, Lord. But help us, uh, just as in so many other places, Father, that we sometimes find it difficult to submit even to you, even to your word. And we pray that you would help us to do so in this case. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for, uh, for the government that you have given to us, for the order that it that it gives to society, and we know that this too is something that, that you have given to us, Lord, that it is, it is from you, and so help us to appreciate it, uh, Lord, even when we have difficulties with it in various ways, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.